Good morning, this is Hindel Grossman. I am a divorce attorney and I am the host of Inside Divorce, a podcast series having to do with issues related to divorcing families. Today I'm interviewing Richard Wallman. I would recommend that the attorneys make an attempt to move up a level of abstraction to 10,000 feet, to look at the family as a system. Because in order for the family system to survive, they have to have enough resilience, they have to have enough guidance, and they have to have enough resources to carry on. Because just because parents don't live together anymore doesn't mean the family is dead. It's still a family. Dr. Wallman has been a member of the faculty of the Harvard Medical School for over 30 years. He's an experienced clinician, teacher, and researcher, and has also served on multiple occasions as a parenting coordinator and a guardian ad litem, appointed by the probate and family court to help families and children navigate through their divorce. This morning, uh, Richard and I will be talking about the best interest of the children, what that expression means, and other issues which children face while their parents are going through the divorce, and the best ways perhaps that attorneys and parents can help children navigate their feelings and successfully get through the divorce process. So Richard, good morning. Tell me, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, good morning. I think uh, I was never prepared really for the, uh, for the world of divorce, child custody, and uh, uh, parenting coordinator, and all of the various issues that come up in the courts. And the way I learned about it was on the job training. And when I was uh, at Cambridge Hospital back in the day, I was the head of psychology there. And I, um, I hired a young woman to work in the probate court in Cambridge. And I was... Uh, contacted by her one day and she said, Richard, you got to come down here and see what's going on. I said, what are you talking about? She said, just come down and see. So I went down to the probate court and we talked about a case she was working on and I found myself for the first time ever involved in a custody dispute. And it was between a family law attorney and his, uh, uh, his wife who had been his secretary. And oh, interesting set of facts. Yeah. And uh, I had never experienced anything like that before. And for the first time in my career, I ended up on the witness stand being attacked by a very aggressive cigar smoking redneck lawyer who <laughs> treated, <laughs> treated me rather, That's an image. <laughs> rather poorly. And uh, it was really, uh, really quite an eye opening experience. And I worked on that case uh, and investigated it with uh, my colleague. We went out to the to the home, we talked to the babysitter, and did all the things that people people still do. And then I was uh, I was required to testify. And then I got so your function in that case was as a guardian ad litem. Uh, yeah, we were we were appointed as as guardian ad litem. So right. uh, I testified in the case, and we went through all the data and so forth. And then it, when it was finished, uh, I had a brief com uh, commentary with the judge, who was a very smart, sensitive guy. And I said, his name was Larry Pereira. Wonderful, wonderful fellow. And I said, Judge Pereira, what happens to these children after they go through one of these experiences? And he said, well, we don't know. We don't know unless they come back to court. So I said, well, somebody ought to find out. And it was at that point that I decided to do a research project on the experience of child custody disputes on children. And actually, mm -hmm. it was one of the few studies, even then or even since, that had an actual research paradigm. 
So that kind of launched me into the two different wings of the divorce, guardian ad litem, child custody world. On the one hand, the clinical experience of what happens when you're actually trying to evaluate a family. And on the other yes. hand, uh, trying to put together some kind of an objective research to learn about the experience beyond the individual case, to talk with a lot of families, to talk with uh, a variety of professionals and so forth. And from a research point of view, it's quite, it's really quite wonderful because you get an opportunity to assess and examine the psychodynamics of children. You get to look at the psychodynamics of children and their families. You get to examine the interaction between parents. You get to look at the interaction between families and attorneys, because attorneys are so critical and so important in this process. And then finally, you get an opportunity to look at what happens when the family hits the legal system, when the state gets involved. So you get this multi-layered analysis, which from a research point of view is quite, uh, quite exciting. From a human point of view, it's horrible, of course. Of course, it is horrible, and it is most tragic to watch. Uh, a child suffering. Yeah, yeah it, it can be. Uh, we did get, and I think this is probably worth mentioning, some very unusual results. When we compared children who go through a custody dis dispute with children who go through, let's call it regular divorce, and what we found was that children actually do better on our measures after a custody dispute. When I saw the data coming out of the computer, I couldn't believe it. I said, this is not possible. I'm surprised. A custody dispute is supposed to be the worst experience a child could go through. How could, how could this be? But it turned out that their level of separation anxiety was actually lower than the other children. It turned out that their internalized hostility was actually lower. It turned out that their family connections were stronger and that their self-esteem was higher. And so for some time we've been trying to figure out how to explain and understand those unexpected findings. And I, um, we have some ideas. I think I'll just take one dimension, self-esteem. When children are in a custody dispute, they know a lot of things, but the one thing they do know is that both parents want them, that they are, uh, you should forgive the term, but they are the prize. And that does a lot, believe it or not, for your self-esteem, to know that somebody is willing to fight for you and really willing to go to bat for you and really wants to be with you. And oh, children in a, I'll call it a regular divorce, I hate that term, but it's a, in a, sort of a garden variety divorce. Very often in a, in a regular divorce, many of the issues are never discussed. In a custody dispute, everything is on the table. In a regular divorce, there's a lot of guilt on the part of children, thinking they may have had a hand in it, they may have something, had something to do with it. In a custody dispute, as some of our kids told me, they said, look, I know both my parents are crazy. And uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be Kids are so smart. I don't want to be with either one of them. Uh -huh. One little girl said, I said, well, how do you decide? She said, well, it's like when you come out of a movie. And uh, one parent tells you something in one ear, and the other parent tells you something different in the other ear. So I said, well, how do you make up your mind? She said, I just ignore them and make up my own mind. <laughs> so the kind of coping and the kind of resilience that we found in these children who had been through a custody dispute 
was really quite phenomenal. So then I got worried. I thought, oh, my God, you know, Mullman is going to go down as a guy who says, going through a divorce, we'll have a custody dispute. It's great for the kids. All right. <laughs> the more contested, the better. Exactly. Well, it's yeah. not. I mean, it's, it's obviously not. But there are some components to what we learn that can be brought forward, I think, into helping parents um, deal with their children in any kind of a divorce, custody dispute, or what we'll call regular garden variety divorce. Well, your research is fascinating, and the observation that perhaps the child feels more wanted if there's a fight over him is uh, an interesting conclusion. I wonder how we can take pieces of your research and apply them in the garden variety so that we can minimize the custody disputes, make children feel bit more wanted instead of excluded from the process. You know, because the general philosophy that I've heard, maybe different in your psychology world, is that you know children should be told nothing effectively about the divorce, you know, not to involve them in the divorce, not to tell the kid when parents are going to court, not to tell the children the results of the court and to bring in as, you know, the goal is to bring in as few extra people as possible. You know, only a guardian ad litem is only requested if something, you know, uh, critical is happening with the child or there, obviously if there's a custody issue or a parenting plan issue, but to avoid, you know, bringing in extraneous people because it'll unnerve the children. Right. Do you believe that? Uh, it's a complete myth. The reason is that children, I'm not talking about two and three year olds, I'm talking about anybody six, seven and up, uh, children okay. know everything. They know what's going on. They've overheard conversations. They hate lawyers. Uh, they know who the lawyers are. Uh, some of the children in these situations know how much the mortgage payments are. They are with their parents under all kinds of stress. They overhear telephone conversations. Um, so to think that it's a good idea not to tell the children is really a big mistake. The problem is children know a lot of things, but they may not know the whole picture. So if a child knows a fragment, it could be true. Uh, for example, that dad doesn't give mom enough money, okay, which he may not for a protracted period of time. So a child might get angry with father and say, why don't you give mom more money? And in fact, dad has given mom a lot of money, but under a different context. So, but the child is left with a piece of accurate information, which then fuels fantasies, it fuels rage, it can fuel emotions and so forth. So my theory is that the more accurate the information that you can tell children, the better it is for them. Do they need every detail? No. Do they need to know exactly what happens in a courtroom and who's going to stand where and, and so forth? No. Do they need to know that mom and dad are going to court? Yes, because there's a reason that mom is anxious and worried and nervous uh, the day before court, and it doesn't have anything to do with the child. So in my view, uh, it's a, as I said, it's a myth to think that children, A, don't know, and B, that they shouldn't know because they do know. Mm. So what should they know? You mentioned just now that they should know when the parent is going to court. But, you know, each parent's reality is different. So one parent, the one that's paying will say they're paying too much to the other one. And the one that's receiving might say that they're not receiving enough. So each one may be right. On the money issue, it's it's a matter of opinion. Well, that's that's the other myth that I think goes along with this. Um, most children are smart these days. And they can tell, forgive me for using the term, but they can, they can tell alternate facts from facts. Um, 
they know what's going on. And they can tell truth from non-truth. And if there's something that is not true, they will discover it. They don't need mom to say your dad's lying and doesn't tell you everything about his girlfriend or his other activities. They don't need dad to say, well, your mother is just making this up and she's, you know, putting on a big dramatic show. They know. They know and they can see it for themselves. And so uh, I think it's important to give children accurate information, but not all the details. It's kind of like explaining to children about sex and where babies come from. Um, I'm always reminded of the story when a little boy asks his mom, Mom, where did I come from? Yeah. And so she begins to launch into this very long, elaborate discussion of biology and reproductive activity. He said, no, no, no. Jimmy is from Chicago. Where did I <laughs> yes well this, that's very funny getting back to this whole idea of what kids should be told i mean i have a case right now it's so it's so sad you know the father's paying the mother i present the mother and the divorce and the father's saying to the mother we're going to have to move out of this house because your mommy's taking all our money and you know she's trying not to involve the kids but she wants to set the record straight in some way she says to me not to them. And so I don't really know what to tell her. Well, what does she say to those say children? She's trying not to involve the kids, but from what you just said, the kids are involved. They are okay? involved. So they're already involved. They're involved because they hear what the exactly. father is but saying but they're involved. Them. They're involved yes. in the game. They are. And in the process. And now they have to begin to sort out for themselves what's true. Do they have an alternative view to look at? No, not if mother doesn't tell them. So I think giving children the not only the benefit of the doubt, but the respect to know that they have brains and that they can figure things out and that they can be clear if they're given fair, accurate, and compassionate data. Interesting. We need, we need to. So that's a different approach, and I like it because I do agree that children are smart and they do observe and they do sense anxiety, and it would be nice if the children didn't think the anxiety was caused by them, but some outside influence like going to court. Not only do they sense or, anxiety, it's osmosis. They breathe it in through their pores without saying a word. Uh, when a mother sends a child for a visit with a father and says your father is coming and rolls her eyes, she doesn't have to say a word. But the message yeah, is very clear. Uh, yeah. We had one mother who would send her children in the summer to father's house for a picnic, but she made sure she fed them before they left. Oh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that sends a message she didn't have a lot of confidence in the exactly. picnic basket. Exactly. 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 Yeah. And children can figure that out. The most important thing for children, in, in my view, especially when you're building a parenting plan, for a family is the F word. The F word for kids is fair. If a okay. parenting plan is fair, children can live with it. Parents can too, really, but children can live with it. They are driven by fair. And if they find out that mom has two days less than dad in the schedule, then they will say to themselves and they'll say to the parents, well, that's not fair. How many mm -hmm. times do kids say growing up, that's not fair? So if parents want to build a parenting plan, if they want to have some kind of a relationship with each other and with the children that makes sense, they have to start with the F word. They have to start with fair. And I think the same is true even in uh, sort of working out the assets and financial 
financial arrangements. People can live with a fair adjudication. If it's out of balance, and I, I'm sure you know this from your work as a mediator and, uh, and from trying to negotiate settlements, whether it's in the financial world or even in the emotional and day-to-day -day world, fair yeah. is the operative term. If you don't have fair, yeah. you're in trouble. That's my view. So we're talking a lot about what you think are the best interests of the children. How would you define the best interests? Fair is one way. Fair, well, fair can lead to the best interest. I'm reminded of a book that came out in the seven, late 70s when the whole custody dispute process began. And the name of the book was Beyond the Best Interests of the Child. And what, what they came up with was what I think is still one of the best descriptors of the best interest concept. And that is, they said, look, the best interests of the child have already been compromised and they've already fallen apart because the best interest of a child is to have two happy parents who get along with each other and who are raising their children in a, in a loving way. Those are the best interests. So they said what we have to look for now is what they call the least detrimental alternative. The wow, that's the other extreme. Least detrimental alternative. And I think that's a guiding principle for the way we consider the best interests of the child. In other words, given the fact that the best interests have already been compromised, what is the next best situation for the children? And when I say the next best situation for the children, I mean the next best situation in which the children can grow, in which they can develop, in which they can live with the minimum amount of anxiety, in which they can have strong relationships with their siblings, in which they can have strong and loving relationships with each parent, yeah. and in which they can be confident that the parents can be in charge. The way I look at it is that the parents are like the pilots of a coast-to-coast -coast flight, okay? They're, All right. they're the pilot and the co-pilot. They sit in the cockpit. The door to the cockpit is locked, even by federal law, it's locked. Mm -hmm. The job of the children is to be the passengers who sit back and enjoy the flight, and to have the confidence that whatever is going on in the cockpit, whether the, whether the pilots are beating each other over the head or whether they're happily getting along, they, they know that the flight will make it from Boston to LA. And to be able to trust that the people in charge will get them where they need to get to, whether it's to a soccer practice or violin yeah. lesson or to get from Boston to L.A. When you're looking at a family from your perspective as a psychologist, is the best interest of a child always obvious, relatively obvious? What? Well, it's easy to see the, um, the benchmarks that I just described and whether or not they're being yeah. met. If, for example, you go into a family and you see children who are tremendously anxious, then you know right away that something has to be done, hopefully, to manage yeah. the anxiety of these kids because anxious yeah. children are not going to do as well as non-anxious children. So from that yeah. point of view, using those criteria that I just mentioned, uh, freedom from anxiety, opportunity to grow and develop, opportunity to have a relationship with each parent. If you have a parent who is um, saying negative things about the other parent, not we call it parental alienation, whatever you want to call it, um, that's not the best interest of the children. Nobody wants 
bad things about their mom or about their dad. How do you recommend attorneys stop the alienation? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is to educate the parents. Because mom may not realize that rolling her eyes sends a very negative message to the children. Dad may not realize that when he doesn't send a check over for the violin lesson, it sends a message to the children. Um, So I think that really starts with the parents and educating them. And in many cases, I mean, parents in a custody fight, parents in a divorce are not criminals. Uh, A lot of them are smart, very smart. You can learn. And I think we have to have faith in the fact that people can learn, are willing to learn. And as you said, when they're not caught up in the emotional turmoil of the divorce itself, and let's face it, um, it's traumatic. It's traumatic to go through one of these experiences. For example, if you, here's the term that I use for, let's stick with the custody fight for a moment. Even a divorce, a a custody fight is a psychotogenic experience. Psychotogenic means psycho, you know, psycho means psycho, means crazy. Genic (laughs) means forming. Uh, Uh Custody fights make you crazy. Uh, Uh You being the the litigant, they just do. And in fact, we were gonna have an experiment or a study in which we wanted to see if we could drive somebody mad. Here's what we would start with. We would take a parent, (laughs) And the first thing we would do is we would threaten him or her with taking away his or her children. Uh Um, Then we would suggest to that parent that all of the money that they had counted on, either for their retirement or had worked very hard for, would not be available. It would be at best, it would be split in half. So we would undercut the financial security. Right. Then we would add into the soup uh, two attorneys. who are hired to represent their clients in a zealous advocacy, uh, fair enough, who have the capacity to inflame already sensitive areas between the the two parties. And then we stir that in, okay? Yeah. And then... I don't like the soup. I don't like the soup we're making. You don't like the soup. This is psychotogenic soup. And then... Once we've done that, then we would set up a situation in which everybody would go to court and they would get there at 8.30 in the morning because that's when you're supposed to show up. And they would pay their attorneys to sit there until two o'clock in the afternoon when they can get heard by the judge who spends seven minutes with them and makes a decision, maybe temporary at that moment, that affects their entire life and their entire relationship with their children. Yeah. And if somebody isn't insane or psychotic by then, <laughs> then I don't know who they are. So that, and the scenario you paint is quite real. Well, it is real. And the soup you're making, time. yeah. And, yeah. you know, when you do it all the time, it feels like, oh, yeah, this is, happens all the time. When you tell somebody who's never been through it, that's why I said it's the open-heart surgery of, of divorce. When you tell somebody yeah. who's never been through it, it's, it's ghastly. And how can anybody survive that? And so what I think anybody in my situation is a guardian ad litem or a therapist or whatever has to remember at all times is that the parents and the children that he or she is working with and talking to are going through an incredibly traumatic experience. Mm 
And it doesn't have to be a custody dispute. A divorce itself is a traumatic experience. And it's traumatic because, especially for the children, because they didn't want this. They didn't ask for it. Right. So, Richard, in your capacity of a guardian ad litem or parent coordinator or, or therapist, can you suggest the the way we, we as attorneys can make the process the best and easiest for the children during the divorce through their parents? Because we don't have direct access to the kids. Obviously, we can bring in people like you who would have access to the kids. How can we best help kids get through divorces? Well, I think your last comment is a good one, which is to bring in a mental health professional who does have access to the children, a therapist or guardian ad litem, so that the attorney can say to that person, what's going on with these children? What are the effects of what's happening? And I think seeing that, because most attorneys, I won't say all, but most attorneys have children. So um, you're talking to somebody who understands children, child development, what they need. Um, So that's the first thing that I would suggest to attorneys, that they and the mental health professionals learn to talk to each other even if it's not in the context of having a court-appointed guardian ad litem. The second thing that I would recommend is that the attorneys make an attempt to move up a level of abstraction to 10,000 feet and take a look not at their own client, not at their own client and their own client's children specifically, but to look at the family as a system. Because in order for the family system to survive, They have to have enough resilience, they have to have enough guidance, and they have to have enough resources to carry on. Because just because parents don't live together anymore doesn't mean the family is dead. It's still a family. So I wonder, at the beginning of a divorce, I always think, should I um, suggest to my client that they they put the child in um, therapy, you know, for the child psychologist at the beginning of the divorce to help the child process information um, during the course of the divorce. Do you think that's a good idea? No, I don't. Uh, pre- Why not? Preventive therapy really doesn't make much sense. It's like preventive surgery. It, it doesn't really help until you know what the specific difficulties are, until you know what the specific responses of a child to a situation might be. I think it's kind of a noble effort on the part of the parents to spare the children uh, of the agony and the pain of a separation and of a divorce. But the fact is you can't, you can't, you can't really do that. So to anesthetize a child or think you can by sending them to a therapist, I think is, is not really a very good idea. And many children don't want to go. Yeah. So if you get an unwilling child, then what have you done? Yeah. All right. So the next possibility is to have a parent coordinator involved early on. Do you recommend that? Yes. I think a parent coordinator, a parent, parenting coordinator, I don't know if your audience knows about parenting coordinators, so I'll just briefly mention that several years ago, a uh, parenting coordinator was a job description that was designed to help people have a dispute resolution forum and to keep them from going back to court over and over. And a good parenting coordinator can do a lot, I think, to help a family overcome small issues, small disputes that have a tendency to grow into large ones. I work as a parenting coordinator, and for me, a parenting coordinator, my role, as I see it, is multifaceted. On the one hand, I perform as a kind of a mediator and help parents try to mediate a dispute. Is it going to be Little League or is it going to be um, soccer for the kids this spring? Okay. Yeah, right. Um, mm-hmm. 
sometimes I have to be a crisis intervention therapist. Something comes up and one of the parties or one of the parents wants to talk about some issue that's come up with the kids. And so they come in and we talk about that in kind of crisis intervention way. Um, I also function as I think, I think someone who can help the family learn about dimensions that their children are going through. So there's an educative comp component to being a parenting coordinator. And if after all of those sort of dimensions have been used and the parents still can't quite decide whether or not it's going to be soccer or whether or not it's going to be Little League for Billy and for, uh, and for his sister this spring, because it's a fact that the, by the time they decide which it's going to be, the season will be over. And the right. parenting coordinator, Takes care of itself. Yeah, right. The parenting coordinator has the authority to step in as the umpire, as the decision maker, and make a binding recommendation. A binding recommendation means that the parents have agreed to follow what the parenting coordinator says. Now, the parenting coordinator may make a binding recommendation if one of the parents believes that it's the worst recommendation they ever heard, if the parenting coordinator suggests soccer, and one of the parents is worried about brain concussion from uh, hitting the ball with your head, and will not tolerate having the children play soccer, that parent has the right under the, it's not really a statute, although it's getting to be that, but under the agreement, to take the matter to the court, and the, and the judge will make the final decision. But by and large, parenting coordination is, a, I think, an excellent tool, even pre-divorce, to help people smooth out some of the issues and some of the conflicts that can really explode into something much larger than they need to be. Sometimes the conflict parents have over parenting causes the divorce. I mean, there are many reasons for divorces. Financial is one, and, you know, parenting can be another. So it would be nice to have a parent coordinator in place before the divorce even starts. Maybe they can overcome that. Right. Or at least to, to agree to disagree about different styles, um, yeah. styles about which they were fighting. You know, dad likes everything neat and organized, and mother is much more kind of open and, and loose about it. And maybe that is conflict yeah. in the marriage. But I think having a yeah. parenting coordinator who can point out that mom isn't doing it on purpose and dad isn't either. And that's what I meant about a kind of short-term uh, therapy, short-term crisis intervention. Um, they don't have to end up in court with that kind of a conflict. Right. Now, as far as your role as a guardian ad litem, when do you think one is necessary to be appointed by the court? Well, the obvious answer is when the parents cannot agree on the distribution of time uh, for, each, for the children with each parent. Um, mom thinks dad's not a very good parent, and the he shouldn't be spending much time with the children. Dad thinks mom is really um, inadequate and negligent and shouldn't be spending as much time with the, with the children. So they come to court. The judge says, well, I hear both sides. You both are you know, saying strong things. You both have good representation from your attorneys. I don't have any idea what's going on. So at that point, the judge says, I need more information. And so the guardian litem is really the person who does what the judge would do if the judge had the training and the inclination and the time. Um, it's usually a mental health professional, not always. It can sometimes be an attorney. Um, and basically, the judge says, please go out and find out what's going on and make a report to the court, which is what a guardian litem And recommendations. Uh, to sometimes court, recommendations, yeah. hopefully recommendations. I mean... Uh, if you're going to appoint a mental health professional, I think recommendations are quite 
uh, quite useful. Sometimes the court yeah. goes along with what the recommendations are. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes the guardian ad litem will make a recommendation in January. And by the time the case comes up again, it's June. And one of the parents or one of the attorneys comes in and says, Judge, I know what the recommendations are, but the whole situation has changed. And so uh, it's very difficult for the court to know how to, how to operate on that. They might get an updated report. They might not. But by and large, when it works well, the guardian ad litem makes the investigation and evaluation, provides the court with a report, and the judge then has more data on which to make his or her decision. Yeah. All right, Richard. Well, we've hit on a lot of very uh, interesting topics and valuable information today, and I appreciate your uh, being with us today on the podcast having to do with the best interests of the children. So I, uh, again, thank you for your participation, and I look forward to working with you again. Well, you're welcome. I, I would love to work with you, too. So uh, thanks very much for having me. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindel at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. Or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.